0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the EMG Health Podcast. I'm your host for today, Michaela Byrne. And in today's episode, we're joined by a very special guest, Mr. Pierre von Weperen. Have I pronounced that right?
1: You've done perfectly fine.
0: Brilliant. So for a bit of background before we get started, Pierre's from Grow Biotech and he's been working in the pharmaceutical industry for over 20 years now. Since starting out in Wyeth Pharmaceuticals, he's held positions at all the big pharma giants, including Pfizer, Merck, Novo Nordisk, and today holds the position of Chair of the Board national MS Fonds, and since November of last year commenced his current role as Chief Commercial Officer at Grow Biotech, which is a UK-based company whose vision is to unlock the potential of medicinal cannabis and make it available for those who need it in an affordable way. Welcome, Pierre, how are you?
1: Thank you, I'm um, I'm very well, thank you, apart from the cold that everybody seems to have in January, February.
0: Yeah, a bit of a disclaimer, we're both been a little bit bunged up today. Thanks so much for coming in, it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you. We met back in November, I believe, at a social media event run by Social Tree Global, of which you were the chairman.
1: Correct, yeah. Yes,
0: how did you find the event?
1: I enjoyed that very much. It, it, the, the topic of social media and pharma, is is such an interesting thing to dive into. And every every company has been looking at it, progress is very slow. So it was good to have a lot of people in the room and discussing the differences between Talking about your company, talking about products, having marketing campaigns, social media and pharma. No, I enjoyed it very much.
0: Mm, you don't get a lot of events where you're talking about something as niche as social media. Correct. So yeah. I thought we could start off talking about social media. Pharma, as we know, is not really viewed as the most effective of industries when it comes to utilising social media. What do you think the main reason for that is? Is it fear? Is it compliance? Or do people just not see the value in it?
1: Yeah, the, I, I guess the cop-out answer is it's a combination of those things, mm-hmm. but it, it, it is, I believe. There's a there's a lack of skills still. If you look at technology companies and stuff, they are much more uh, 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 simply skills-wise and, and astute in using social media. On the other hand, if you if you start engaging in social media, and we've looked at projects when I was in pharma companies. Uh, previously, if you start listening in to, fo- to, to social media, you start interacting, you, you probably also need to do something with the stuff that you hear. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and anything that is around patients talking about potential side effects, you need to follow up on. Doctors giving advice that that it may not be the advice that you want them to give, you need to follow up on because it's not within the label. So there's a lot of areas that are that are difficult for companies to deal with. So that's just from the listening point. Then you look at how can you market. Pharma companies still very much think in terms of product marketing. Mm. But we are not allowed to communicate to the public about products. So, so you can't really do that. Yeah. Which, which leaves um, areas like talking about your company and awareness of your company. And that is probably something that pharma companies are now kind of waking up to think about talent, ret- talent attraction, talent retention. Purpose is one of those fashionable words that everybody uses at the moment. If I, want, if I get go for a job, that job needs to be have a purpose. What am I doing it for? So communicating about what you stand for as a company is probably something you can use your social media a lot more for than everybody's doing it so far.
0: On that note, we're seeing a rise in apps like Babylon Health and Uber, like we were talking about earlier. There's a lot of people saying that this is going to replace healthcare professionals. Do you think that there is really a risk here and are medical science liaisons which you guys use is that uh, also an answer?
1: You know there is a, there is a there is a li- there is a limit. There is a there is a, a there's a usefulness but there's also limitation. You will still see you, you can treat a lot of things with algorithms. You can tick boxes about um, um, symptoms that you have, and you probably land somewhere in a, it could be X, Y, or Z. Yeah. At some point in time, you still need to do a blood test. Somebody still needs to listen to your lungs, or you still need to do an ECG or whatever. So there, there will still be a physical interaction. As long as we haven't dealt with that, there is, there is a use for having a video interaction or a uh, interaction with a, with a chat box mm. that can get you so far and then what. So the usefulness now I think is a lot around decreasing wait lists, dealing with simple things that you can actually deal with over the phone. Do that which will then free up time for doctors to do other uh, really important stuff. Mm. So there's a usefulness there. And, and Babylon, uh, for example, will deal with that. Um, MSLs um, is, a, is a very separate uh, conversation. I, I also I very much believe that the traditional interaction between pharma companies and doctors, where sales representatives talked about products and talk about data, that used to be useful 20 years ago. But now internet, everything else, healthcare professional will have access to the data mm. and will have seen data, before the product is even licensed because they attended a conference. So where does that leave the, the, the representative in what conversation you need to have? So how can you make that more useful? What's the value that the industry will have for healthcare professional? It's more about identifying patients that need a certain intervention than talk about certain products. And that's something the MSLs can be very good at.
0: So as I said in the introduction, you joined Go Biotech three months ago, is that right? Yep. Technically, Grow Biotech is a startup. Am I right in saying that?
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right.
0: Yeah. So you, I think, have t- taken quite a non-traditional route in the fact that you've got been in big pharma before and now you're in a startup. So I'm curious about how the two models compare, particularly in the ho- your current mission, which is to unlock the potential of medicinal cannabis.
1: Yeah, it's it's a, it's a very interesting comparison. I mean, when you look at my career, I've done big pharma, smaller pharma, grown with companies to become bigger, launched products. Uh, and 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 done it in different cultures, Danish, American, French companies in the UK and the Netherlands. so've I've seen lots of all these different things. Um, what I've always tried to do is is run my team or run my department in a way where everybody is very much engaged, has accountability, understands what the strategy is, where do we want to go, what do we want to achieve and and then do that in a, uh, and and then you can transfer that into startups because that's what we do. There's 10 of us in a room, uh, an office not that much uh, bigger than what we're sitting in now. um, And everybody knows what we're trying to do and everybody is accountable. Everybody is really involved in what we do. Uh, We we try to avoid meetings. We try to avoid emails. We just talk to each other Mm -hmm. and do it. And, And this thing about failing uh, failing quickly and t- t- try and get up and do something else. That's what we what we can do, what we have to do, and mm. what big pharma probably has moved away from more and more. The bigger you get, the bigger the risks. Right. The bigger the the uh, let's let's just continue doing what we're doing because that's that's okay.
0: There's more to lose. I suppose. There's
1: more to lose when we when you launch a. Um, I, I remember launching launching an anti-TNF. And the first million pounds or the first million euros you sell, it doesn't even show up in the, in the company's uh, uh, P&L. Mm. Then it becomes 5 million. And you go, okay, that's a bit more interesting. Then it becomes 50 million. and everybody suddenly gets interested. Yeah. Because if you don't achieve your 10% growth, that suddenly means a lot of money. When it mm. becomes 100 million, everybody gets nervous. And when people get nervous, everybody gets involved. And then nothing really happens anymore. So it's more about... Conservative is the is the euphemism for driven by fear to fail. We can't afford that. We just we just need to try things mm. and do it.
0: So having ten people in a room, then I assume you're just more aligned. Is that is that fundamentally yep. what it is?
1: Definitely, mm. very much aligned, very much involved. Everybody knows what is going on, and you, you roll up your sleeves. You you'll be doing um, uh, something completely different today than you're doing tomorrow. We have job descriptions, but something happens today that we, we didn't expect it's not it's in nobody's job description so what are we gonna do mm. oh yeah I'm not responsible for that that doesn't work like somebody that. will step up somebody will step up Yep. yep.
0: cool um, I was looking on your LinkedIn you're quite an avid social media poster mm. um, and I saw that you had a blog that you wrote where you talked about some of your observations in your new current role, your new role um, and you said that the pharmaceutical cannabis industry needs to become more pharmaceutical in its behavior could you explain what you mean by
1: that? Yeah, that's a good point. When I, when I joined, one of the things um, that, that I experienced from my role within Ashfield, where we were dealing with a medicinal cannabis company already, is that there, there was a lot of pressure on changing noise, changing NHS, getting medicinal cannabis on, 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 the, uh, um, on the NHS. And everybody was trying to push things whilst the companies were very much set up to, to grow products and expected when the uh, law changed that there would be a queue of doctors and patients around the corner who all wanted to prescribe cannabis. Mm-hmm. But that didn't happen because people were still worried about the fact that it's unlicensed and the cost and the, and the uh, media around it. So th- we, we had these companies who were set up to provide the product but never really understood how to communicate with healthcare professionals. So there was this gap We didn't have sign-off procedures. We didn't have uh, things that, although we are not members of ABPI, but I still think you should behave like a member of ABPI if you're communicating with healthcare professionals. Mm -hmm. But nobody really understood those things. I think I was the third or fourth uh, person with a pharmaceutical background who who joined the cannabis industry. And we started putting all these things in place. If you're talking to healthcare professionals, example, I had a health affairs team. Nobody in 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 healthcare in the NHS understands what a health affairs team is. They mm-hmm. think it's about wellness and about spas and every all of that <laughs> stuff. So I changed that into medical affairs, mm-hmm. and I have MSLs, and now everything. Oh yeah, I get that. I'll send right. the MSL. I know what the MSL does. So that's what I mean.
0: So on medicinal cannabis, yeah. um, it's quite an interesting time to be part of this conversation which you are particularly in the uk where it's all relatively quite new and and the education is still pretty lacking even amongst like healthcare professionals like you were saying you're quite uniquely positioned to talk about this confusion um and how much is education a focus for grow biotech
1: education is is massively important in in the medicinal cannabis area there are there are two or three really important factors that influence anything that happens that first of all there is a lot of confusion about what it actually is. Everybody can buy CBD oil in whatever, Holland or Baron, Superdrug. there's a wall of that stuff. Uh, That's not what medicinal cannabis is about. Medicinal cannabis is a combination of THC and CBD. It's unlicensed, which then confuses a lot of people um, because you need to go through private prescriptions, you need to find private doctors who want to prescribe it. Patients generally know more about the product than many of the doctors know, and because it's unlicensed, we can't promote it. Mm-hmm. We can't. We can't go out like in traditional pharma, where you have a field team, even including MSLS, talking to doctors and educating them. We need to kind of wait until the doctor approaches us, mm-hmm. but the doctor doesn't know where to find us. So, um, in in that combination, before I joined, all these companies didn't do anything really just hope that at some point in time they would bump into a doctor who'd be interested having heard about all of that we decided that um, one of our branches Logist pharma is really only focused on doing that education training if you want to if you want to start prescribing with this on cannabis we will help you understand you need to get your FP10s, you need to have your private clinic, you need to speak to your um, responsible person within the CCG, CCG, who is responsible for the unlicensed medication, where to find that, how to set it all up. So that's what we do. And then at the end of that, after all the education, if you then decide that you want to start using with this and cannabis, my MSL or my uh, account manager can talk to you through about that.
0: Right, so with patients being more informed than ever, they sort of have to become more educated about the subject, don't they?
1: Yes. Mm. But they also, they're all a little bit nervous about the fact that it's unlicensed. And, and, um, and there, there is very little evidence. Well, uh, should you say that in a different way? There, is, there's, there are no randomized controlled trials. Mm-hmm. And, and the way healthcare professionals, doctors think, have been trained to, is where's the trial? Show me the evidence. What do I need to do? Where is it on the guidelines? What yeah. does NICE say? What does the nr say? So people follow a lot of protocols. Mm. There are no protocols with medicinal cannabis. So it's a bit of a, here's all the data. Here's all the evidence. Here's the anecdotal evidence. You have your patients. You need to work it out. But you probably need some education around the different products to work out what therapy area you can use them for. Mm. And that's difficult, again, because we can't go out actively and promote that. So it's a bit of a... Finding a fishing competition to to make sure that we work out to find the right people who are interested in and talk to them.
0: This whole collecting real world evidence, what would be sufficient then for for Nice, for example, to begin using it?
1: Yeah, that, I mean we, we can spend the rest of the <laughs> afternoon on that. So so the, the, the one, the, there are there are several reasons why there are no randomized controlled trials. One of them is that to do a randomized controlled trial, you need to get pharmaceutical grade. Uh, API, so active ingredients, to set up the trial. That's very difficult with a plant, mm-hmm. and plants, eval- plants evolve, plants have different strains, plants have different THC and CBD contents, it is, it's even even within the same plant, whether you take the top of the plant or the bottom of the plant, there are differences in that, so getting a product that is actually right to start doing a, condi- a randomized controlled trial is a difficulty in itself. You can synthesize it, but we know that synthesized CBD or synthesized uh, THC actually works less than the natural product. And the investment that will be needed to get to that will be massive. So that's, that's already one of the reasons why it doesn't happen. Um, there is th- that doesn't mean that you can't, crea- can't create or build a real-world evidence base. So there are globally thousands of publications of people that started using it, groups of people started using it, and they show benefits. Mm. Having said that, that's not what NICE probably will deal with. And that's probably not what the NHS will deal with. We also know that many of these patients take these products after the failure of lots of other things. So if you have chronic pain, you've been taking the standard uh, painkillers, even more exotic ones, opioids, opioids, And they stop working. That's when people start taking medicinal cannabis. So even even if you would look at it from a traditional perspective, medicinal cannabis would add to the to the cost or to the bill for the NHS. We we know from a YouGov poll that has been done that there are probably 1.4, 1.5 million people in the UK using medicinal cannabis for medicinal purposes, not recreational but medicinal. They're all paying somewhere between 300, 400, 500 pounds a month to their dealer or that. If that would transfer into the NHS, mm-hmm. you can see the three, four, five billion pound bill at the end of that, plus a queue of a million patients who need to see a healthcare professional. There is a feasibility thing around that yeah. that simply doesn't work. Yeah. So yeah. that doesn't mean that we shouldn't create access for those patients. And, and with the excess, every patient that we have now goes into a data capture program where we see what happens, how they improve. So you build and create that real-world evidence where at some point in time, we should be able to go to the NHS and say, look, for these patients in this therapy area who have done X, Y, and Z, having this medicinal cannabis product definitely helps.
0: Yeah.
1: And then you will get uptake.
0: In 2018, there was a case in the UK in the news. Um, I can't remember the name of the child.
1: Alfie Dingley. That's I the guess. one, yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. So this was a child who had epilepsy and his mother was having to go abroad to go um, seek treatment. You see these sort of cases where public p- people are putting pressure on governments to change and make change um, in terms of law. Is this the right approach when you're going around seeking approval and um, looking to change systems by force?
1: It's that's, that's a good point. You know, um, activism... Is what it is. Yeah. If you, if you have a, and and we we talk to patients who who have, like Alfie, uh, four five hundred seizures, micro seizures every day, mm. uh, epilepsy, spasticity, uh, that's not a life. That's horrible. And and they've tried all the epilepsy medication that is there, but it still hasn't changed. These kids start on this and cannabis, and the number of seizures goes back to five a day. Yeah. That's a whole completely different life, not just for the child, but also for the family around it. The, the, the problem now is that the argument, again, the scientific arguments, there is no randomized control study showing that. So it's very difficult to go to the NHS or to NICE and say, look, we have the evidence to do it. So you have activists, like, like with everything else, that start banging on the door and demand access to this and it needs to be done mm. it needs to be and it, it it is it is the right thing to do that is probably not the solution to the problem the solution to the problem is much more around creating more access to medicinal cannabis in general so we can import if we can import more we can reduce cost currently the home office regulations mean that we we have to ask for an import license for every individual prescription, which adds to the cost, then the product has to be imported. And, and whether it comes from the Netherlands or from Canada or from Germany, the cost for that go on top of the cost for the product. So it becomes quite expensive. If, if UK government would allow us as an industry to import more product, cost can't come down and then all these patients that are now using medicinal cannabis anyway would have an affordable alternative with a proper legalized drug, with healthcare professional oversight, with continued quality, not having to go to a dealer at the corner of your street, and not knowing what you're actually taking. Yeah. So, so yes, you need the activists on one hand to, to create, to make, to make people aware of the issue. There is an issue, Mm. and that issue can be solved by uh, increasing or by actually enabling the industry to do what the industry is good at.
0: Mm. So obviously this is quite serious, but I think a lot of the rhetoric, and I think probably a lot of people would agree, the rhetoric that you hear around it isn't as solemn, (laughs) I suppose as the word that you hear a lot of government officials can't necessarily talk about this subject without Cracking a joke or a pun. Or yeah. Do you think that this is uh, something to worry about? And are we at risk of undermining the sort of sort of importance of this?
1: Everybody, everybody, uh, people feel the need to be to be jokey about it, isn't it? I mean, there are so many meetings. that the first item is a potted history of cannabis, <laughs> as I, as, honestly. But uh, yeah, but there is a point where... Um, the the general public thinking about cannabis is driven by the whole recreational part. We're not talking about recreational cannabis. We're talking about medicinal cannabis. But what it means is that people who are now using medicinal cannabis also find it very difficult to talk about that to their friends and colleagues because everybody thinks they're just trying to get high. You're not. You're dealing with epilepsy, specificity, people who have serious chronic pain end-of-life care with people with brain tumors, and, and, and you can change their lives, but they are, they are worried to talk about it to their friends' family in the pub or, or even talk to their employers about it because of that funny thinking around it. We need to really make a clear split between recreational and medicinal cannabis use. We are not about legalizing cannabis. We are about making sure that people can get access to medicinal cannabis at an affordable way through a healthcare professional. And that's that's what we're working for. And and until that kind of rings through with people in Westminster and everybody else, we will continue fighting for that. We're gonna push out a white people fairly soon where we're going to where we're going to highlight all these issues around supply, around access, around education. And, and in many ways, also UK PLC, because the, the, we could be, as a country, a big exporter of medicinal cannabis into Europe.
0: Mm, I read somewhere in the National Geographic that we're apparently the biggest growers in the world.
1: Yeah, there's a, there's a company in the UK, GW, who have two licensed products. They grow in the UK and they export. And they spent hundreds of millions on getting that sorted over the last twenty, twenty five years. Mm. and but but, as a country, we are they are already exporting a lot. We could be massive in that area. if If government rules would allow us to import, we could uh, compound products exported into Europe anywhere else, and uh, we would be able to add billions to the UK PLC tax bill mm. and GDP. And we pay taxes, dealers don't. Mm-hmm. So there's a big difference in yeah. that.
0: Awesome. Finally, you're from the Netherlands and you've lived in the UK for how many years now?
1: 13. Yeah, I lost my return ticket a while ago.
0: <laughs> right. So aside from the obvious, what in the UK do you think we can learn from people in the Netherlands and vice versa?
1: It's it's a, um, you know, many people think, and, and I hope I'm not going to offend my Dutch friends, People always think about Dutch as being incredibly tolerant. We are just pragmatic. I think that's a, and it's easy to confuse. Uh, the, one of the things in the Netherlands really big is if you can't, if you can't police it, if you can't control it, it might be smarter just to legalize it or let it go. Um, we, we do a lot less things around um, uh, health and safety and, and uh, the whole Political correctness bit, um, which which makes life in in many ways easier. Even even street signs, if you take away street signs, people need to think about what they're doing. What we do here is we put more signs up Mm. and more double yellows and more you can't park here and everything else. It's confusing for everybody. Just so just look at it from a different perspective. I think that's the biggest difference apart from thinking that the. 10.05 10, 10.05 train to Amsterdam will always arrive at Platform 5, whilst here everybody is staying, standing in Waterloo Station and guessing where it's going to come. And then you get this deluge of people <laughs> diving towards Platform 10. Yeah. That's probably something that could change. But on the other way, there are lots of things the other way around. I mean, I, I seem to have developed a, a, a liking of queuing because I do think that queuing the on the continent, and I mean, Italians are massive on this, Three gates open and everybody just goes wham, mm. and it's and it's completely uncoordinated. <laughs> and people trample over others, so there there are some benefits in that. Um On the other hand, you know, talking to people in the queue, uh, we would do that in the Netherlands. If you do that in London, everybody goes like, "What? Who are you? Are you mad?" Yeah, I think that's
0: very, th- London specific, yeah. very London specific. It's very London specific. Yeah, yeah, I, I
1: know. But uh, so th- there are loads of things that we that you can learn. Uh, when I came over, I had a very good PA who who kind of Looked at me every now and then, "You can't say that. Well, you can't. You can't do that. Or, you can't write that." Because I'll, I'll, you think you know the language a little bit, isn't it? You, right. You, yeah. And you, but I had no idea about the. I could. I should. I would. And and the fact that the the less um, uh, whatever pushing you formulated it, the 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 more it actually becomes. Mm. The Dutch would just go go and do it, mm. and and they will tell you what's wrong with it. Whereas here, people will tell you what you can do to improve it which actually is a lot nicer. So mm. what I do now is I combine these things. <laughs> when I go both to the Netherlands, I, I, I do a bit of English. And they go, you're not Dutch anymore. And that was all right, but there's, there's an interesting way in between.
0: True dual citizen now.
1: I do enjoy it. Yeah, yeah, yeah I do love
0: <laughs> Well, thank you for coming in, Pierre.
1: Thank, thank you very much, And if Michaela. people
0: want to know more about what you guys do at Grow Biotech, I can refer them on to you, your personal LinkedIn. Yes, um, Which is, I'm going to say it right again, Pierre von weyperen perfect and also go check out the website which is www.growbiotech.com so thank you so much i'm afraid that is what we have time for thank you for listening thank you to pierre for joining me today
1: thank you very much
0: i hope to have you again next time on the emg health podcast